This is Exodus 19, verses 1 through 11. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, if you are uh, visiting with us, uh, we have been in a series on the book of Exodus. We're finishing up that series in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we've called that series A Love That Delivers, and it's essentially the story of the book of Exodus. The, the second book in the Old Testament is the story of God seeing his people, hearing his people's cries who were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and then leading them out of slavery and delivering them from their oppressor, Pharaoh, and then leading them on the way to the promised land, leading them into freedom. And so God does that. He comes down into Egypt. He comes down to his people who are under the mighty hand of Pharaoh, and he sends the, the ten plagues to deliver his people. And finally, uh, they're set free on the night of Passover, and they get to the Red Sea on their deliverance march, and they're backed up against the wall, and Pharaoh's army's coming, and God parts the Red Sea, and they walk through, and they get to the other side, and God destroys the enemy of the people of God in their deliverance. So he's taking them from slavery, but now the second half of the journey is, is upon us, and they're not enslaved anymore, but they're being delivered into freedom. And so God has his people in the wilderness, which is often where we learn freedom, um, and he's, he's teaching them how to be a free people. They were slaves, now they're free. And so where we're at in the narrative, what, what Rachel just read for us is we have arrived at Mount Sinai. And you may think as the reader that this is the first time we've been at Mount Sinai, but this is actually the second time we've been at Mount Sinai in the story of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, at the burning bush with Moses, that, that infamous scene where Moses is speaking with the I Am, with Yahweh in the burning bush, the burning bush scene takes place at Mount Sinai. And what God says to Moses at the burning bush is, I'm about to send you back to Egypt to deliver the people, and here's how you're going to know that it's me that did all that work, is I'm going to bring you and your people back to this very mountain, and y'all are going to worship me here. 
So this chapter 19 is, is the proof that God gave in Exodus chapter three that said, hey, you're gonna doubt and you're gonna wonder and you're not gonna know who's doing what. I'm telling you, when you get back to Mount Sinai, that's when you'll know it was me that delivered you. So we're here. And the Israelites will be at Mount Sinai. They will, they will be at the base of Mount Sinai for the rest of the book of Exodus. They will actually be at Mount Sinai, the base of the mountain, for over a year. They're going to spend the next 60 biblical chapters at Mount Sinai. They're, they're here for a long time. They're here for the rest of the book of Exodus, all the book of Leviticus, and then most of the book of Numbers. And then they begin from Mount Sinai heading to the promised land. It takes them 40 years to get from Mount Sinai to the promised land. So that's where we are. And in this Sinai narrative, where, where we are now, where this story will keep us, we have this, this, this thing, this rhythm that happens. Seven different times in the book of Exodus, Moses will go up on the mountain, he'll hear some things from God, and he's getting words from the Lord to then bring back down to the people. And this is the first of those instances where Moses is going up to get words to bring back to the people. And in the next chapter is perhaps the most famous of those mountain climbs and back down, because Moses is gonna go up and get the 10 commandments from the Lord and bring the Ten Commandments back down to the people. But it's important for us to understand the, the, the moment right before Moses gets the Ten Commandments, which is why we're in Exodus 19 this week, not Exodus 20. We're going to spend some time next week talking about the Ten Commandments. Uh, but Exodus 19 sets up the narrative, sets up the context into which the Ten Commandments will be given. Everybody knows the Ten Commandments, or at least has heard of them. But pulling Bible stories and truths out of context is never a good idea. It's especially true of the Ten Commandments. God's law being given to his people is critical for us to understand the context, the things that are said leading, leading up to the law being given, the, 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 the stories that have taken place leading up to the law being given. And Exodus 19 is that context for us before we get the law of God next week in the Ten Commandments. The law of the Lord that he will give them must always be understood in the context of the story of redemption that he's writing and doing and accomplishing for them. The law is meant to fit into the story of God being a saving God. And like I said, we're going to talk about the law next week and the beauty of it and actually the freedom that's in it. But first we need to sit in this, in this preface to it. Exodus 19 sets up what we need to know before we get the Ten Commandments next week. This is, this is the preamble, if you will, to the law that's being given. So verse 3, we're told that Moses goes up the mountain. This is his first trip up the mountain to meet God on the mountain. And he's going to hear from the Lord and get words from the Lord and bring those words back to the people. And what Moses brings back to the people is where we're going to camp today. Verse 4 and 5 says this. You can turn there or you can just trust me. It says this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So the first thing that the Lord gives to Moses to then give to the people, he gives two things that we're going to talk about. The first one very briefly. The first is this. It's what we just said. It's the story we just told of Exodus 1 through 18. Is this, hey, Israel, remember what I did for you. 
You're here and I brought you here. Don't forget that I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you out of your slavery and I got you here. You have been saved by me and that's not changing. You are a redeemed, delivered, free people and I did that for you because I love you. I brought you to myself. You've been rescued by me. It's the first thing that Moses is to tell the people. Hey, don't forget the last 18 chapters. Don't forget that. You you need to remember what God has done for you. And then here's the second part of what God has given to Moses that he is to give to the people. And this is where we're going to spend our time this morning. It begins in verse 5. It says this. Now, therefore, meaning now, therefore, what I just told you that I saved you, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That middle sentence is the thesis of the entire chapter. It's actually like the thesis maybe for the entire book of Exodus. I've saved you. Now that you know that I've saved you, listen to what he says. If you will indeed obey me and keep my covenant, you'll be blessed. If you will indeed obey me and keep my covenant, you'll be blessed. Everything in this passage, everything in the setup for the Ten Commandments that's coming next week and the law of God that's going to come from Sinai, everything hinges on that little two-letter word, if. It's a mighty word. It's a daunting word. And if we're honest, it's not a word that we love to see in this passage. Like, whoa, 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 God, you did all this saving and now you're putting some stipulations on some things, like some if-then things. I'm not sure I really am down with that. I don't really like when you say words like that. That sounds kind of manipulative. And I thought you kind of saved us because you loved us and now you're throwing things out like if you do this. And if we're honest, that word if is the thing we dislike most about religion in general. All the ifs of religion and in particular the ifs of Christianity, the ifs of the biblical religion, all the if you do this, then this, that whole mantra has given Christianity a bad name. And, and the, all the ifs of our religion, if you'll do this, you'll be blessed. That mantra has been abused. It's been used to manipulate. It's been used to squeeze people in all the wrong ways. The ifs of our religion have been misapplied and used for personal gain, so much so that when we read this passage and we hear the if of Exodus 19, if you do this, you'll be blessed. We go, that's, certain, that's not my God. That's not, that's, not, that's not my Jesus. That's not the God of the Bible that I like. He doesn't, he doesn't say words like if to me. But if just for a moment we can step back from it and and rid ourselves of the semantics of it, we would see this. Relationships, which is what God is in with his people here, relationships always have ifs. There's always ifs in relational dynamics. Kids, you can go out with your friends on Friday if you do your chores before then. Employees, you will get a raise if you hit your numbers. Elliot, you will be sleeping on the couch if you don't turn off the NBA playoffs, hypothetically speaking, has been said this week. But we, 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 know, we know that ifs, parameters given to, to guide a relationship, ifs are very normal in relationships. There's always ifs in relationships. That's not cruel. That, that's kind. These are the ifs that should guide our our relationship with another. These are the the parameters. These are the boundaries. These are how we should be interacting. It's how relationships work. You and I witness the ifs of relationships every time we go to a wedding. That's what people promise is the ifs. 
that if you do this and if I do this, then our marriage is going to be good. That's, that's why we take vows to one another. The Peets just took vows that this is how they're going to raise their children. This is what they believe. And if they stay true to those commitments, things will go better for them in their relationship with their kids. God, because he's a relational God, always has ifs in his relationship with his people. It started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, if you obey me and don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely live. And if you disobey, you will surely die. It's always, it's very natural for relationships to have ifs. This is the same premise here. Israel, if you obey, there will be blessings for you. Like in all relationships, there are expectations of you. This is, how you. this is how you are to act. These are your boundaries. These are your rules. This is how love should look between us. That's what comes after the if. That's what the ifs are driving us to. The Lord saved you, Israel, and now if you will obey him and keep his commands, keep your end of the covenant, to use the text language, you'll be blessed. You'll flourish. You'll know the heart of the Lord and you'll be free. And so what is this covenant keeping that's on the other side of the if? If you do blank, what is that blank? What must they do? What is obedience supposed to look like for them? Well, like I said, we'll talk about it some next week, but the law of God is about to come down in the very next chapter, Exodus chapter 20. And it's going to come down to them in, in lots of subsequent chapters, but Exodus chapter 20 is, is the Ten Commandments, and that is kind of the, that, that, that catches everything. That's the, that's the epicenter of God's covenant law to his people is the Ten Commandments. If you're new to church, the Ten Commandments is all the you shall nots in, in that you've been beat over the head with potentially. It's the you shall not murder and you shall not steal and you shall not have any other gods before me and you shall not commit adultery and you shall not covet. It's all the you shall nots of the Bible. But what we also have to understand is that when the Bible gives you shall nots, it also gives implied you shalls. Meaning, you shall uh, not lie means you shall tell the truth. It's implying to do the opposite of it. So you shall not murder doesn't mean you should beat someone to a pulp and then just leave them barely hanging on for dear life, but I didn't murder them, so I'm still cool with the Ten Commandments. No, you shall not murder means work for life to flourish. Do the complete opposite of killing. <laughs> do the complete opposite of taking life from someone. Give life to people. You shall not steal is not just, hey, don't steal little, uh, don't uh, cheat on your taxes. It's, no, you should be generous. The opposite of stealing is giving your stuff away. That's what the Ten Commandments is, is implying. It's this, it's this grand uh, picture, the Ten Commandments is, of what it means for humanity to flourish in the world. You shall not do these things. You shall do these things. And just to be clear, these are not ten suggestions. These are not uh, 10 steps to a great marriage. These are not um, 10 principles that God really wants to give you so that your life is easier than it currently is. It's none of those things. This is the law that binds people in relationship to their God. The 10 commandments, the 10 words it's been called. And in the passage, in our Exodus 19, that, that's what's on the if you obey. If you obey what? It's the 10 commandments. And then in our passage, there are three consequences, three blessings given to their if you obey. If you'll obey, here are the consequences. Here are the blessings that come with, with obeying this law. Three, three consequences of blessing for the people. 
And all of these blessings have an identity attached to them. You will be my treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests, and you will be a holy nation. It's declaring over the people, if you obey, this is who you'll be to me. That's what God is saying. And all of it, all of the blessings that the Lord gives right here in covenant language, all the blessings are dependent and hinge on the if. If you obey, you will be blessed. So let's see how the people respond to that. Because Moses gets that from the Lord, and then he comes back down to the people, and he gives them the same spiel, that this is what the Lord wants to say to you. If you obey him, things will go well for you. Let's see how the people respond in verse 8. Very simple. All that the Lord says, we will do. They don't even know what they're signing up for. They haven't even heard it yet. They just hear that, hey, the Lord's going to give you some commandments, and if you obey them, it's going to be good for you. And they go, done, we'll do it. Everything the Lord says we're going to do. They don't even need to hear what the promise is or what, or what the law is. All that they know is that Moses just said, if we obey, it's going to be good for us. And so they promise in their excitement and in their enthusiasm, we will obey that law perfectly. Whatever comes down from Sinai, we're going to do it. Everything the Lord says we're going to do. So I'm a Christian and I'm a pastor and so I'm currently reading Lord of the Rings. Uh, and I've seen the movies, but I haven't read the books before, but I'm loving it. Uh, don't spoil it, even though I know how it ends, but don't spoil it. I'm in Fellowship of the Ring right now. If you don't know uh, what's going on, there's a ring. Uh, and, and this little uh, hobbit, Frodo, is destined uh, to be with the ring and it's his job to you know, destroy it and Mount Doom and all that kind of stuff. So he's at uh, Rivendale. Rivendale is this elf place, and uh, they are gathering together for this massive journey to go and destroy this ring. And Frodo takes a vow, he takes an oath, and he says, I'll do it. Nobody else, the ring didn't choose anybody else, it chose me, I, will, I accept it, I'll do it. And then all these other people at the council, that they build with him, they commit to him to be his, the fellowship of the ring. They're going to go with him to Mount Doom. They're going to say, we will journey with you on your journey. So that's, that's the setup. And then it gets to the end of their little gathering, and they're about to hit the road and head out, and they have no idea what lies ahead. And Elrond, the, the king of the elves, he says, that, he says to everybody, he goes, hey, I know that the, you guys all promised that you would go with Frodo on his journey. I need to clear something up, though. He says to them, he says, um, not all of you should have taken that oath. In fact, none of you are bound by an oath. Only Frodo's bound by an oath to go do this thing. And he's saying to them, because you need to be free to get out from this journey if you get on this journey and you realize you, you don't have what it takes. So he says this to them. He says, four, you, you don't, you're not taking an oath, so feel free to leave to get out at any time on this journey. He says, for you do not yet know the strength of your hearts, and you cannot foresee what each may meet upon the road. And then Gimli, the dwarf, the, the burly dwarf, says this. He says, faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens. Meaning like, that's bull. If we're promising to this guy, they're a coward if they leave when the road gets dark. We're promising to go with him and we're not, we're not saying we have an out down the road like you're saying, Elrond. He says, no, faithless is he that leaves when the road gets hard and the road gets dark. And then Elrond says this, maybe, but let him not vow now to walk in the dark who has not yet seen the nightfall. Meaning, don't, don't promise that you're going to walk through the dark with this guy before you've even seen how dark it's going to get. And then Gimli responds again, and he says, Yet a sworn word may strengthen a quaking heart. 
Meaning, yeah, but if we promise now to go with him in the dark, when it gets dark, we'll rely on the strength of our promise and that will steady our shaking hearts. He says, yet a sworn word may strengthen the quaking heart. And Elrond says, or break it. Meaning, you're going you're gonna to overestimate yourself and promise that you can walk through the dark before you've even seen how dark the darkness really is. And Gimli says, yeah, but I'll stand on my promise, and that promise will strengthen my heart. And Elrond says, or it might crush your heart, because you're going to be promising to do something that you can't do. Don't overpromise and underdeliver. Overpromising before you know not only what you're up against, but before you even know what you're capable of. That's essentially what we see the Israelites doing here. They haven't even heard the law come down yet, and they're already promising to get an A on the test. Everything the Lord promises, or everything the Lord says, we promise to do. What's interesting is that we still do it. It happens every time somebody takes wedding vows. <laughs> every time. I do a lot of weddings, and I, I try to hint at this in the wedding, and I'm not being funny, but they're going to promise something when they take their vows. Do you know what they're promising to do? To love the other person perfectly every second of every day. Good luck with that. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't do wedding vows. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing on wedding vows. What I am saying is that you, they are, they are, they are over-promising what they're going to surely under-deliver on. We do it internally also. In our own souls, in our own spiritual journeys, we promise that this time will be different. We promise that we won't mess up in the same ways. We promise that this time we've learned our lesson. We promise that we're gonna better ourselves. We make vows to ourselves and to the Lord and to everybody that we interact with. And here's what we do. It's just what Elrond warns Gimli about. We vow to walk in the dark before we've seen the nightfall. We're not really sure how dark it is in here, and so we make vows that we can deliver on things that we cannot deliver on. We vow to walk in the night before we've seen how dark it really is. Plainly put, we overestimate ourselves, which our pride loves to fan into flame. It's one of the ways that our pride always manifests itself is that we hate the way we feel about ourselves. We don't like the way our life feels. And so what we typically do to make ourselves feel better is we promise to do something differently so that our life will feel better. We love thinking too highly about ourselves. We're so insecure with how we're actually um, doing. We hate the way that when we assess how we're doing spiritually or emotionally or relationally, when we do the self-assessment, we can't stand the result. And so what our immediate natural tendency is, is to vow to do better, to vow to get it together next time, to vow that this won't happen to me again, to vow to not make a mess of it. And we end up doing just like what the Israelites are doing here. Everything the Lord says we'll do. We make spiritual promises that we can't keep. We overestimate ourselves and our abilities, and we underestimate how dark the darkness is out there and in here. And the Israelites, sorry to ruin the story for you if you don't know how it goes, uh, they won't end up doing so well. They promise in Exodus 19, everything the Lord says we will do, and they, if you follow the thread through the Old Testament, they will walk away again and again and again and again and again from the law that the Lord gives them. Like, they don't, they don't get, like, it's not like a pass-fail and they barely didn't make the cut. It's not graded on a curve. Like, they, they never get it right. They're so far from their, their self-proclamation in Exodus 19 that everything the Lord says we will do, they don't do it. 
They overestimate the strength of their hearts and they break the covenant and the covenant law over and over and over and over again. But what the Israelites didn't know, uh, we actually know. If you own a New Testament, um, it's been revealed to you. Something that the Israelites didn't know. And I want, I want to go slow here because what, what we know that the Israelites didn't know about their if, about the law that they were signing up to be perfect at, what they didn't know that we know is absolutely game-changing. The New Testament actually says in several places, a couple more explicit than others, it's very clear all throughout the New Testament, but in several places it is, it is verbatim, I mean, it, it is un. It is unmistakable what the New Testament is trying to tell us, the New Testament reader, about how we should think about the Old Testament law. The law was given for a primary reason that you probably never expected. And the law was given for lots of secondary reasons, but there is a primary reason that the New Testament says the law is given in the Old Testament so that you would know something. It's actually kind of this concealed purpose that, that we never think about first. And the New Testament keeps pushing us back into it to go, don't forget, this is the first reason the law was given to you and given to the people of God. In Galatians chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 7, these are probably the two most explicit places where Paul, the New Testament apostle, is talking about how the church, the New Testament people of God, need to view the law in the Old Testament. Romans chapter 7 Galatians chapter 3, and we're told that the first reason that the if was given at Sinai, the first reason why the law was given to the people of God at Sinai was to expose our failure to keep it. Paul says in several places, the law was meant to show you you can't do it which is so backwards to us. Paul actually says in Romans 7, this ludicrous line. He says, the law was given to increase your trespasses. It was given to let you know you've got a way bigger sin problem than you thought you did. And you know what Paul's example is in Romans 7 when he goes down that trail? He goes, I didn't even know what sinning was until the law showed me how bad of a sinner I was. He said, I, was, I had no idea that coveting was wrong or that I was doing it. And then I heard the law, you shall not covet, and I found in me I was coveting every day. I had no idea my problem until the law showed me my trespass. And he says the law was given to increase your trespass. It was meant to show you you've got a way bigger problem than you like to think about yourself. In Galatians chapter 3, he calls the law a tutor like a school teacher. Anybody get math lessons, math tutoring after school, where every day the tutor was trying to show you something and show you what was true and show you what was real? The law was your tutor. You know what it was trying to show you? You're not very good at keeping it. And every time you come back to the law, your tutor is gonna go, yeah, you're not doing so good. Not doing so good. Not doing so good. You getting an A on that test yet? Let's keep practicing. Not doing so good. Not doing so good. The law was given to increase your trespass. The if of the covenant was meant to lead you to try and fail at it so that you would know you can't keep it perfectly. So, if you're someone who has tried very hard to keep the, the ifs, to, to keep the law of God as a Christ follower, and you've come to the painful realization that you cannot keep it, get this, the Bible would say the law has served its first purpose in you. It's It's worked. The law has convinced you you can't keep it. That's what Paul says is the first use of the law. 
The law was meant to lead you to the freedom of admitting that you can't do it. So do you know how grave your sin is? Do you know how far you miss the mark on God's law for you? Do you know how way out in left field you are on getting close to keeping God's law? Do you know you're not very good at it? Then the law has worked for you. It's accomplished its mission for you. But are you someone who's, I'm not really that bad of a person. I I do pretty well. I try to be a kind person. Then the law is not done with you yet. This happens in the Bible. The rich young ruler that comes to Jesus in in several of the gospel accounts, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he goes, Jesus, 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 I'm rich, talk to me. And he goes, hey, uh, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus goes, well, you've heard the, the Ten Commandments. You have to follow the Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler goes, done, next. And Jesus, I mean, so gently, he doesn't go, well, Hold your horses there, buddy. He doesn't try to talk him out of his, you actually aren't keeping the Ten Commandments the way you think you are. Do you know what he says? Do you know what he gives to the person who thinks that they're keeping the law perfectly? You know what he gives them? He gives them more law. He says, oh, okay, cool, kind of. He says, "Uh, okay, fine, you're keeping the Ten Commandments perfectly. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. The guy goes, eh, probably not gonna do that. I actually don't think I can do that one. Do you realize that for someone who thinks they're keeping the law perfectly, this is someone who literally is saying to Jesus, I'm keeping the Ten Commandments perfectly, that Jesus says to him, let me give you some more law so that the law can crush you. I need you to know that you're not actually upholding the law. And in order to do that, I will give you more law. I will give you a standard that you actually are not able to keep. In our self-deception that we think we're able to keep the law, Jesus would say the law hasn't tutored you enough. The law hasn't increased your trespasses enough in Romans chapter seven. So Jesus says it, Paul says it. If you don't believe either one of those, I'll quote C.S. Lewis because it's gotta be true. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. Old old Clive says this twice, two different ways in mere Christianity. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. And then he goes on to say this. The main thing we learn from a serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues, the main thing we learn is that we fail. So if you don't agree with Jesus or Paul or Clive Staples, I probably won't be able to convince you this morning that the main reason the law was given to you was to show you that you're not very good at keeping it. That if the law was not meant to lead you into thinking highly about yourself. It was also not meant to to be this standard that you tried your whole life, like Sisyphus, to just push it up the hill. And I've got to keep trying to attain that law. Hear the words of Jesus and hear the words of Paul. The law was meant to crush you. If it hasn't crushed you yet, it's not done with you. The law was meant to to not let you ever think too highly about yourself. And so the Israelites, they've been set up. They they didn't know it at Mount Sinai. They're a case study for us, the New Testament says. Hey, learn from them. Learn from the Israelites. They were were here to teach you something, New Testament church. That Exodus 19, they they burst out of the scene. They go, everything the Lord says we're going to do. That if depends on us and we got it. And they spend the next thousand and a half years failing at it. The if of the law was meant to lead you into honesty with yourself. And do you know what comes with that honesty? Freedom. 
that if you're willing to admit, I, I don't even get close to upholding not only the you shall nots, but the you shalls of the Ten Commandments. I don't get anywhere near it. It was meant to invite you into that kind of vulnerable honesty, which is freedom for you to be able to admit the law has tutored me enough. I get it. One of my favorite uh, authors was the late Brennan Manning. And he died several years ago, um, and he was a drunk, and he was a liar, and he was someone who failed at his end of the if his whole life. And this is what he said. His final book is a book called All is Grace, and if, if you've never read him, don't read that first. Read a couple others first, and then go close with All is Grace and get a box of tissues. But he, he, he tells the dark secrets of his story. He tells the parts of his story that he's been lying about for years. He tells the parts of a story that nobody knew about, even when they thought he was such a great writer and great prolific author and speaker. And he says this in All His Grace. He says, prone to wander? You bet. I've been a priest, then an ex-priest. I've been a husband, then an ex-husband. Amazed crowds one night and lied to friends the next. Drunk for years, then sober for a season, then drunk again. I've been John the Beloved, Peter the Coward, and Thomas the Doubter, all before the waitress brought the check. I've shattered every one of the Ten Commandments six times Tuesday. And if you believe that last sentence was written for dramatic effect, it wasn't. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to hold Brendan Manning. I don't want you to go be like Brendan Manning because he caused a lot of people a lot of pain. And he admits in this book, like, I was going on these speaking tours, admitting how the, the grace of Jesus led me into being sober. And then I was going and getting hammered at the hotel bar that night, not telling anybody. And so I'm not, I'm not promoting him. Here's what I know he knew, though. Here's how I know how free he was. He knew he couldn't keep the ifs. He knew that the ifs were too much for him. He wasn't like Israel, overconfident in himself, saying everything the Lord says will do. And the New Testament would say the primary use of that little word if, the primary use of the you must keep this part of God's commands to be blessed, the if was meant to get you to be honest with yourself that you can't do it. And please understand what the Bible is and isn't saying. The Bible does not say, it never says, it's nowhere close to saying that if you're having a hard time keeping up your, your end of the ifs, if you're having a hard time with the covenant law, that God goes, well, that's just, it's not a big deal. Let's just throw that out. Like the law is Old Testament stuff, who cares? Nowhere does scripture even come close to saying that. God, these aren't 10 suggestions. And when God said, if you'll obey, you'll be blessed, he never reneges on that. He never goes back on that. He never says, ah, gosh, that was me being a little harsh, wasn't it? Let's just, let's just way lower the standards, and let's just, let's just make sure that everybody can kind of get in on the bell curve. The Bible doesn't say here in Exodus that if the if isn't kept by God's people, that he was just kidding, and it's not a big deal to him. The Bible says that the ifs always come with consequences, and obedience to the if means blessings for you, and failure to the ifs mean curses for you. And we just saw that when the, the primary reason, this is what the New Testament says, the primary reason that the ifs were given, that the law was given to the people, was to convince them that they can't do it, which means the people of God are under the curse of not keeping their end of the deal. That we break the Ten Commandments six times Tuesday... And that a serious attempt at keeping the law is the fastest way to just to see how bad we actually are. That's, that's what the law does. It's the tutor to crush you. 
That's not all the Bible says about the law. The Bible also says that in driving us to honesty with ourselves and honesty with others and honesty with God, it also, the law also drives us to the one who kept the law perfectly for us. That's how Galatians 3 ends, when it says that the law was given as your tutor, as your school teacher, to lead you to a place of understanding you can't do this. The very next sentence is this, until Christ appeared, so that you could be justified by faith in him, not by works of the law. The law is not meant to exclusively drive us to despair. It was meant to drive us to hope in light of our failure. The law was the tutor that ultimately drives us to Jesus. Yes, the law shows you your own sinfulness and failure, but the law also shows you the one who completed every inch of the law for you. The law still had to be kept. The law still had to be perfectly obeyed in order for anyone to get blessings. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five. He's giving the Sermon on the Mount and he says this because he's talking about forgiveness and he's talking about grace and the gospel of the kingdom and he knows that people are gonna make some assumptions. And then he says in Matthew chapter five, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to get rid of it. And the very next sentence is this, I came to fulfill it. I came to do what it required be done. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly in every respect. And then, do you know what he did with that? He loved perfectly. He was generous perfectly. He was patient perfectly. He loved God perfectly. He never lied. He always spoke the truth perfectly. He kept all that the law required, all the you shall nots and all the you shalls. He kept all of that perfectly. He upheld the if. Do you know what he did with that? He boxed it up and he gave it like a gift for you, the one who can't keep the if. He said, hey, I know that you're walking around with this robe on, this rag that you wear, and it's got tears in it and it's got stains on it. And you keep trying to put on this rag of your own righteousness. And you keep trying to impress yourself and impress everybody else and be a good person and get your life together. And that rag smells terrible. Take that off and be naked and then wear my robe. I have a robe of righteousness that I accomplished for you. Wear this. It fits you much better. He fulfilled the law's demands and then he gave that accomplishment to his people to wear like a perfect white robe. Listen, God's grace doesn't remove the if of the covenant. God's grace fulfills the if of the covenant in Jesus and you say, surely it can't be that way. Surely it can't be that the law shows me my failure and then it shows me my savior. And scripture is radically clear on this. God's grace doesn't remove the if of the covenant. It fulfills it for you. Essentially, when the law has done its work to crush you, like the rich young ruler, you might need more law to realize you're not that good. But once the law has crushed you, do you know how Jesus deals with legalists and Pharisees? He always gives them more law. Do you know how he deals with sinners who are a mess? Always gives them grace. Always. When the, when the sinful woman in Luke chapter 7 who's a prostitute and slept all around and she comes into Jesus' feet, you know, he doesn't say to her, well, have you sold all you've got and given it to the poor? He doesn't treat her the way he treats the rich young ruler. Do you know what he does? He says, all of your sin is forgiven. All of it. The law, the law has done its work on you. God's grace doesn't remove the if of the covenant. It fulfills it and then gives it to us as righteousness to wear. 
Or as it has been famously put by another dead theologian, God is the God who both uncovers and covers our folly. God is the God who both graciously uncovers and then covers our folly. And that's what the law, that's what the if was meant to do to you. It was meant to lead you to honesty and freedom and then to see Jesus who kept the law for you and then gave you the gift of his own righteousness. So now, if you belong to Jesus, this is, this is, the, this is 100 proof gospel, what I'm about to tell you. This is, this is what the Bible is all about. It's what Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, the if of the covenant that comes with blessings, this is what the scriptures would say the whole thing was for. If you belong to Jesus, the one who kept and fulfilled the law for you, do you know what's true of you now? You get all of the covenant blessings as if you had kept the law perfectly. Jesus got the covenant curses as if he had broken all the law, and then we, if you belong to Jesus, you get all of the covenant blessings as if you had kept the whole law. And you say, there's no way that could be true, and I, 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 I'm with you. That's way too good of news. It says, that's just what the Bible says. Don't kill the messenger if you don't like it. I'm just telling you what scripture says, that Jesus got your covenant curses for breaking the if, and we get the covenant blessings because he kept it. So this first covenant blessing, I just want to say a few things about it. This first blessing for someone who kept every part of the if, it's what happens in this text. If you obey me, God says, let me tell you the blessings that will come to you. Now, because Jesus obeyed for you and gave you his righteousness, these blessings are true for you. Do you know what the first one is? The first blessing in Exodus 19, if you keep the law perfectly, you'll be his treasured possession Treasured possession, that Hebrew word there is skula. Personal treasure, it means. And then he says right after that, he says, you'll be my, my, my treasured possession, my skula. He says, you'll be my treasured possession. And then he says, for the whole earth is mine. It's like, wait, God, are you bragging about something? Like, why are you letting us know that you, the whole earth is yours? It's because in their ancient Near East understanding, kings owned everything. And God's saying, I'm not just king of the wilderness or king of Egypt like I just showed you with Pharaoh. I'm king of the whole world. And I still, even though all the earth is mine, I still have a, a special private treasure that's, that's just for me. Kings had all the possessions of their kingdom at their disposal, but kings also had skulas. They also had personal treasure that they cherished more than any other possession in their reign. And God here says, of all of my possessions, the whole earth is mine. But of all of my possessions, you're going to be my treasured possession. What do people do with their treasures? Or let me ask this. How do you know if someone treasures something? There's probably several answers to that question, but here's a few things. What people do with treasures is they guard it. They keep it. They love talking to other people about it. But here's what I know more than anything else about personal treasures. And I'm not talking about idolatries. I'm talking about treasures, things you actually cherish. What, what do we do more than anything else with the things that we treasure and the things that we cherish? We never want to let them go. 
It's what we do with our treasures. We hold on to them because we never want to let them go. It's like the old question that used to get asked at VBS. It was a terrible question. But like, if your house was burning down, what would you grab? And all the Sunday school teachers really wanted you to say your Bible, which is a stupid answer because there's lots of those. That that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> the treasured possession is, what is the thing in your life that like, you can't imagine not having like the way you look at your daughter or the way you, you, you think about your parents or, the, or your grandparents or the way you think about something that someone's given you, a, a grandma that, that left something to you and you go, I don't care if I lost everything else. This is my treasure. This is what I have to have. I know what people do with treasures. They never let them go. And that's what the Bible says you are to the Lord. Not because of anything you've done or haven't done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. He kept the if and then gives you the blessings that come with it. He has made the wretch his treasure. And he will guard you, he will keep you, he will show you off, and he will never let you go. Let's pray. Jesus, the, the if of the law makes us feel like we're not very treasure worthy. Because if we're honest, when we look in the mirror, we haven't, we haven't come anywhere close to keeping it. And so would you, either for the first time, for some of us, or maybe for the hundredth time, would you let the law's um, crushing demands uh, lead us to honesty? And then would you also let the law's crushing demands lead us to Jesus? That he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill it, that we might be our God's treasured possession. Would you do that now on this Sabbath and give us rest as we sing to you? In Jesus' name, amen.